Hi, this is Jill Jarris. From September 2017 through April 2020, this podcast was known as Olympic Fever. We've since changed its name to keep the flame alive, but we're committed to keeping our back catalog available to you. So please keep the name change and this disclaimer in mind as you listen to it. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Olympic Fever podcast is strictly for informational and commentary purposes. The Olympic Fever podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC. The Olympic Fever podcast is not a sponsor of the USOPC, nor is Olympic Fever associated with or endorsed by the USOPC in any way. The content of Olympic Fever podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. And I was like, I would be honored to do anything for my country. Anything you think I would be great for, I would do it. That's why I'm here. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello and welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever, the podcast for Olympics fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello, happy Olympic year! Happy Olympic year, Jill. How you doing? I'm so excited and so scared because we, we don't know what to do. We are recording on New Year's Day yes. and I woke up this morning and I freaked out a little bit. <laughs> Because I, you know, that first thing of, oh, it's 2020 and it's New Year's Day and this is great. It's an Olympic year. And then I thought to myself, oh my God, it's an Olympic year. <laughs> and this is just us. I mean, I cannot imagine what's going through the organizers' minds. Well, hang in there, buddy. We are with you in terror. Right? Oh, man. But they'll do. The, they're pulling us together. I mean, stadiums are getting done. But as we look for the next Olympics, we also have a next Olympic hopeful. I know. I know. So in the U.S., the U.S. OPC has uh, has had for the last few years a show that is, uh, it's a reality show, but what it is is designed to find talent for some smaller sports. And the next Olympic hopeful show is a way for not only these smaller federations to find talent, but also a way for the USOPC to, to show who they are and show people what the Olympic process kind of is all about. So we have been lucky to talk with winners from the last two seasons, and we got one for season three. But before we get to our next Olympic hopeful winner, uh, we'd like to take a moment to let you know that this week's show is sponsored by RR Auctions. RR Auction is a globally recognized and trusted source for Olympic memorabilia, and they also specialize in other collectibles categories such as space and aviation, rare manuscripts and documents, presidential memorabilia, and many more. RR Auction's January Olympic auction is online now, and uh, the bidding will begin on January 9th. 
This auction features over 150 rare and remarkable lots, including Olympic medals, diplomas, posters, badges, tickets, and relay torches, with some notable items, including the 1984 Los Angeles gold medal for Greco-Roman wrestling, a 1988 Calgary gold medal for the biathlon 4x7.5-kilometer relay, a 2016 Rio gold medal, and torches from Cortina 1956 and Calgary 1988. They also have a London one. Yes, and they also have a sweater from yes. Squaw Valley. Oh my gosh, I would love that sweater. I really love that sweater. So please visit rrauction.com to register to bid in the upcoming auction. It runs from January 9th through the 16th. And when you register, don't forget to mention that you heard about RR from the Olympic Fever podcast. We'll have links to all of this in the show notes. And we have stuff going on on social media as well. We'll, We show different lots from the auction themselves. So uh, check it out. It is pretty amazing to see all of the stuff they have. And stuff like... Stuff I didn't even know existed. Like, there's a medal from one of the early Paris games that's for firefighting. I know. And this is something like, yeah, I know. And I have to look more into it because I was like, what is that all about? I don't understand. The Olympics, the early Olympics are just amazing of what they used to cover. Things you didn't even know you wanted. You get on that website at our auction and you want it all. I know, exactly, exactly. So we are looking forward to seeing how this auction goes. And uh, hopefully, if you bid on something and win, let us know what you get. All right, season three of the Next Olympic Hopeful aired this week, and we're talking to Leah Fair, who was selected to be trained for Skeleton. We talked to her about her experience on the show and what's been happening since she won. Take a listen. Well, congratulations, first off. Thank you so much. You're welcome. How difficult was it to keep that secret for a few months? Oh my gosh, I am the worst secret keeper in the universe. It's like every time someone asked me, I was like, uh, I can't say anything. And people thought I was being rude, but I was like, no, I really can't say anything because it'll jeopardize the show and it'll jeopardize financial opportunities. So I really can't tell you because I know last season and the season before they had only prolonged it for about two months from when the tryouts were, but for hours until December. So just having that longer time to wait, it was like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. So just watching the show, I watched it like five times because I had been waiting so long for it to come out. But it was it was definitely hard to keep that secret from family and friends. Then did you like disappear mysteriously to camps and things for skeleton and couldn't explain where you were? Oh no! So I we basically tell that I got invited to um, skeleton camps and bobsled camps. I just couldn't tell that I was a winner of the show. Oh, so, okay. We just couldn't announce that we actually won. So we can announce that we participated, that we made the top 50 finalists a winner. So it was a lot of times like the USA um, and Bobsled Federation will ask us to post on our Instagram and Facebook. We just had to be selective with the words that we used. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about your background. You were uh, in track, you ran sprints and went to the 2016 trials and didn't make it, which was, it had to be heartbreaking as well. So Tell us a little bit about that. It definitely was heartbreaking. Yeah, I didn't make the trials, but for the trials, you have to hit a qualifying standard. So I was two tenths away from hitting 
the qualifying standard to make the trials. So there's about 30 women, I was top 50, there's about 30 women who compete at the trials and the 100 and both 200. So I was basically about 20 spots away. But in track and field, it's like, it's one tenth of a second, one one hundredth of a second. There's so many people that began. So it was definitely devastating just knowing that's only one step in a race. So it's like, wow, I was one step away from qualifying for an Olympic team trial with one step away from an Olympic team, which is still very, very close. But it's just the thought of you having to wait four more years to go again. It's like, what the world? That's a long time. That's a long time to be sad about something. So it's just like, okay, what am I going to do in the next four years? Am I going to try to go again? And of course, when age becomes a factor, you just start thinking, is this going to be worth that? And am I really going to be able to make a team? So um, I, I still continue to train. And I'm glad I did because it prepared me for this event. And you switched to weightlifting. Yeah, so I had an injury, which was the first injury I've ever had in my life. So my body was completely shocked. Like, what is this? It was just in a warm up and I was doing hurdle hops just to warm up. And I fell over a hurdle and sprained every ligament in my ankle except for one. So it was like the most freakish accident. The doctor was like, how did this even happen? And um, after that, I couldn't walk. So I resulted to weightlifting, just a sport of weightlifting, just actually like lifting weights at first because I was like, okay, well, I don't want to gain weight. I still want to stay in shape. I still want to have muscles. I'll come back from an injury and look worse than before. So I stayed in the gym and um, I, once my recovery and my injury started to go better, I had Olympic lifts. And then my coach started noticing like, wow, she's really strong. And I transitioned to weightlifting just because weightlifting, they switched CEOs and they were looking for new talent. So they were hosting a lot of camps. Like NOH was one of the camps weightlifting participated in, but weightlifting as a whole was really um, on the upthrive in the sport community. So once I heard about it, I was like, wow, they're looking for new people. Um, I really want to do this. So I had only been doing it for two months before I went to the next Olympic hopeful competition, which is not a long time at all. I just thought, okay, well, if I have potential, maybe they'll recognize that and train me up. But they did test you for, we saw rugby cycling and bobsled. Yes. Yes, they tested us for rugby, bobsled, skeleton. Um, I didn't get selected for rowing. I'm really small. I wouldn't have expected them to select me for sport specific testing for that but it, it was really exciting um rugby I don't like contact sports I don't like being touched <laughs> so for me it was more like oh my gosh please let an individual sport choose me I'm just so small like I, they told me I was the smallest person on the entire show in height and in weight so uh rugby was exciting but the whole time I was like oh don't touch me don't touch me but it was really exciting and a great experience now, I had made a note that you did look very tiny compared to everybody else. How tall are you? Um, I'm 5'3". <laughs> that is tiny. You're still taller than I am, but... I'm 5'3 and 120 pounds. You're a little pocket princess, Leah. And I think the next person closest to me on the... Yeah, I was 130. Oh. So when we have... Yeah, we're doing the events of like your arm width, your height, your weight your body fat, everything in the beginning. So the coaches have those stats. And they just told me like, oh, you're the smallest person. And I was like, great, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, not not quite rowing height. Because <laughs> no. most, most of the rowers had like the super long limbs, which makes sense because each sport has a certain body type. 
So it made sense that the coaches were choosing sports that would relate most to like the body type and if they could transition easily. So when in the show did you start to think that maybe you were being really seriously considered for skeleton? I didn't think it at all. <laughs> I, I didn't think it at all until the very end, like the last day, right before they announced the winners, um, Matt had came up to me, who's one of the skeleton coaches. And he was like, hey, so I just want to know if you were to ever try skeleton, like how would you feel about it, the sport? And I was like, I would be honored to do anything for my country. Anything you think I would be great for, I would do it. That's why I'm here. And I said, I know I had an expectation in winning weightlifting, but if, if you thought I could be uh, good at skeleton, I would love to do it. And I was really excited when I was talking to him just because he was excited. So he said after the show, that was one of the reasons they selected me, just because I was so passionate and you can tell that I really wanted it. And he said that that's what separated me from the other girls. Have you gone down the skeleton run yet? Yes. So <laughs> how did that go? Bad. It's not bad. Oh my goodness. I got a few, a few bruises um, on my ankles and on my knees. And the girls were like, oh my gosh, you didn't have pads on? I was like, no. So the veterans on the team were like, you're supposed to wear pads on your shoulders. <laughs> so it was so funny, just common rookie mistakes. Um, but it wasn't bad. I love speed. So for me, it was more excitement, like, wow, this is so cool. We went like 60 miles per hour on my first run. So at first, like getting used to it, he's like, okay, so on turn number 12 and turn number 13, and you're going so fast. I'm like, I can't even see the turns. How do you guys even know what you're doing? But they say as time goes by and you continue to do it more, it'll start to slow down and you'll be able to see your way. So I'm just waiting till I get to that point. Wow. So after the show that you finished taping, so then did you what mm -hmm. what did you do with the sport after that? It was like a week or two later, I was in Lake Placid, New York, which is where the uh, Winter Olympic Training Center is. And I competed in a rookie push camp, which is it's like a rookie development camp to see where you are for bobsled and skeleton athletes. And I placed fourth overall. And after that, I got invited to another camp the next month. And the next month I competed in the push trials for bobsled because they didn't program yet. So I was just there doing bobsled, which was really cool. Uh, but the sled for bobsled weighs like 375 pounds. And they were like, yeah, you're definitely too small. <laughs> so it was still fun to be there. Um, and then every month since then, I've been in Lake Placid. I'll be in Utah Park City, which is another Olympic training for bobsled and skeleton in February. And for this January, again, I'm going to Lake Placid, New York. So it was a complete, um, really complete, fast transition for the bobsled and skeleton. They're usually really fast, which um, why I was really glad that that was one, the sport that chose me. Just because I know some weightlifters had to wait a little or find a coach. But bobsled and skeletons, like, all right, let's get them in right now. <laughs> so it was exciting. Josh Williamson. They've been through your exact experience going through the show. And, and oh, having yeah, one. definitely. Yes. Mm -hmm. Having them as mentors was just phenomenal. Having Josh and Sylvia on the show. I don't know if you saw that. Just They were through us to us the entire time, making sure that we knew how to push the sled, making sure that we were mentally strong. So it was good to have their perspective. But I definitely think that was an advantage for us because they didn't have that. So they could tell us, hey, this is what you need to do. <laughs> this is what you don't need to do. 
And I was just messaging Josh yesterday and just thanking him, like, thank you for being such a great mentor. And he was like, absolutely no problem. I just want to see you guys make it. And so it was amazing. It definitely was amazing. It was interesting when Josh was on, it was right before uh, PyeongChang. And he was really quick to say, hey, when they talk about next Olympic hopeful, we're really talking about the ne- the Olympic cycle after that. Have they talked to you about what a future might be? Like, are you looking at 2022? Is 2026 more reasonable? Or how did they start thinking about that? Or how do you start thinking about that? Right. So bobsled and skeleton, even though they're the same federation, they're two completely different events. And bobsled is a way quicker transition than skeleton. Because mostly the bobsled athletes, um, you can transition into a pusher fairly quickly, a bricksman from the back. But for skeleton, there's so much skill involved. It's not something that you can just jump into and be in Olympics in the next year. Um, So they have me more projected for 2026 and then the Olympics after that. They say skeleton is about a five to 10 year transition. Whereas a bricksman like Josh Williamson or Sylvia Hoffman, you can transition in a a few months. So it's very different um, for me. But uh, actually, just just the way that technology has advanced now, they're saying that it can be a much fairly easy transition because of the technology sleds we have. So that's what my future looks like for skeleton. (laughs) So with the next Olympic goal, the show, the Olympics only happens every four years. So you have to think about okay, well, if it's going to happen this year, most likely the athletes that were projected will be like the next four years in the Olympics or even the next eight years. So it's it's a waiting time bomb, but I definitely think the show is worth it for a lot of sports. What were some of the skills that you were surprised to find that you needed to have for a skeleton? Oh, an extremely strong core. <laughs> like, oh my goodness. So now I incorporate a ton of core into my exercise regimen, just because it's so important to be able to hold yourself on the sled when you're going into big banks, just because you're going 60 miles per hour. So it can definitely sling you off. (laughs) The first time all the rookies went down, one of the girls actually fell off the, (laughs) the sled because she wasn't, her core wasn't strong enough and she wasn't holding on. So it definitely makes a difference. So that was one skill. I was like, wow, I really need to get my game up because my core isn't strong enough. Um, I ran track and field before, so it's definitely important, but I wouldn't say it's as, because with skeleton, if your core isn't strong enough, you're going to be flying off the edge. So so I've definitely incorporated more core, more sit-ups, more, oh my, my my whole workout regimen has changed in focus. Even um, being more explosive in the start because you have to run about 30 meters in the start of skeleton before you jump on the sled. So I've been doing more short base intense training instead of training for a longer race, like a 100 or a 200. That's really interesting. Because we haven't talked to, mm-hmm. like, skeleton is one of the sports we haven't gotten to cover yet. So it's interesting to hear like, oh, that, that core, need, you know, you stay on the sled that way. And how the, right. the, the G-forces affect you is probably different. We've talked to losers before, but the G-forces probably affect you differently than they do a luge person. So do you feel it a lot in your back or is that more where the core comes in? I feel it in my head. (laughs) It's so weird. I mean, it's only weird because it's the first time I'm doing it, but it's like when I'm going down my, your head is shaking, 
So you have more relaxed you are, the better your run will be. So the first time I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so scary. But when you're more tense and you're shaking yourself, goes. so Matt was just like, okay, calm down. Try to be as relaxed as you can. Try to be one with the sled. So my ch your chin be like three inches, probably closer than that to the ice. So you're going down the sled and you're going down the track and your chin is like this close. Really, oh my goodness, it was terrifying. But after, after you get over that, it's it's not, um, yes, yeah, my head, like my head was shaking afterwards. You guys, if, if anyone wants to try skeleton, it feels like a roller coaster going 60 miles per hour. Wow, 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 wow. I think for, for me, the, the skeleton was always super scary just because you were going head first. But it's, it's interesting in a way that you can probably see the track fairly well when you're going down rather than having to like try to keep your neck as far back as you can and look up a little bit. Right. We, we got an opportunity to actually watch the luge because when we're practicing bobsled, we have a certain order that we'll go in. So we'll get the list before we go out and practice. So the luge will usually go before us. So we'll wait and watch. I was like, oh my goodness, how? And I know some people look at me like, no, how do you do that? But Luz, like, head back, I could not believe it. I could not believe it. It, it was so awesome to watch. And they're, those athletes are just so, so dedicated. I, I was like, I wonder who created this because this sport is so crazy. In the double luge, if I seen that, I was like, oh my goodness. I didn't know the person underneath doesn't see anything. So it's just the one on top steering. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. That's some trust. Right. <laughs> Seriously. I, was like, you, I don't know if I could trust you that much with my life. That's a lot. <laughs> What's it like to be in the cold for you? Because you're from, you're from North Carolina, if I remember I'm from South Carolina. South Carolina. Oh, wow. Even more the, so. Yeah, me and the cold do not get along. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even going to lie. Me and the cold is like, no. So when I first went out there, I didn't even have a big winter jacket. I mean, I, I went to Colorado State, so of course I'm used to the cold. I ran in the cold. I was in the, one of the coldest states of the United States. But just being in the be, in, being in the cold and having to wait. So in bobsled and skeleton, what a lot of people don't know is there is a lot of waiting time in between runs and in between waiting for other teams if you're competing internationally. So you have to constantly warm up. Um, you have to make sure you have heat warmers in your hands and in your shoes and really big jackets and really thick socks. So going into this, not being prepared the first time, I was freezing. I had someone else's jacket on. <laughs> like I had a random hat on. People were just handing me items of clothes. So now <laughs> I'm definitely more prepared. I have snow boots now and I have a winter jacket. So when I go back in January, I'm like, okay, I know what to expect. So now I'm going to be prepared. People were out there with like, oh my goodness. You know, those big puffy jackets and the big puffy pants, like that's what people are wearing when they're warming up and they're warming up in their snow boots. So coming from track and field, I'm like, wow, I've never seen warm up in snow boots. But Josh Williamson was telling me, he was like, yeah, you need to get a pair of these because your feet will freeze and your toes will freeze if you don't have these on. So I was like, okay, note it. <laughs> gotcha. It's so funny because all the athletes that we've talked to from pretty much luge and bobsled all come from warm weather places. 
you know, Josh mm-hmm. is from Florida and Lauren Gibbs was from LA. I'm like, and then you all end up in these freezing cold sports. And I think the reason for that is a lot of the athletes who transfer from one sport to the other have done like fast speed, explosive sports. And most of the time, the sports that have those qualities are summer sports. So it's cool to see the summer athletes transition over to the winter sports and make such a big difference. I mean, they both for it in such huge ways, especially Lauren Gibbs being a silver medalist. I mean, I couldn't imagine what it would be like if they didn't have the transition. I, I think because of the program now, more athletes will start to realize the popularity of the sport and it's just gonna make it so much bigger. It's so exciting to see um, the new talent coming. And you got your puffy coat, so you'll be okay. Yeah, oh my goodness. That's so... And the thing is we have to get on these trucks. So they take us to like this shed where they hold all the sleds and the skeleton sleds and the bobsled sleds and they're like top secret which I didn't know so you can't take any pictures in there you, you can't post them on show engine work on the sleds and certain technology and because we compete with other countries we can't let them know you know what we're working on or what we have new sled so it feels so cool like oh my goodness I feel like I'm in outer space or something and these sleds are worth so much money. It's just an amazing experience to see the sleds. And then once we get to the shed, they put us onto another truck. So they transfer us two times. So we get onto another truck with the sleds and then we go up to the bobsled and skeleton track, which probably takes about 15 minutes because we're going up the mountains. And and then once we get there, they drop us off into like a, a weight house where they have cameras and TV so you can watch each person go down the sled. So then you just order every person to go through the turn and then they'll call you over the intercom and then you're up next. <laughs> so super cool. The process usually takes, say if we would leave at three o'clock PM, we probably wouldn't get back to the training center until like 10 o'clock PM. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So it takes a long time. Holy cow. And then like, are you up early as well to, do you get a workout in like a weight workout in before you go to the track? Yeah, so we have the weight room and a track at the training facility. I, I'm not, I don't wake up early. So. <laughs> Some athletes are getting up at 6 a.m. And I'm just like, why? Why are you doing that to yourself? Because we don't, we usually don't practice until the afternoon. Uh, we've, I've never had a morning practice with them before. So I usually get up around 9 or 10 a.m. And I'll practice around 1 or 2. And then head to the track around 3 or 4 and I don't do weightlifting. I do I do the weightlifting about three times a week. And then every other day I, I do running. So what I really liked about this sport for me, besides a few tweaks in my workout, but I still do speed-based training because you need that for skeleton. And then I still eat because there is a weight requirement. And um, I want to make sure that I stay in that weight requirement and also have enough muscle. Because what I didn't realize is that having more weight and skeleton could actually be an advantage because once you're going down the sled, it adds that momentum. So if you're heavier, but can maintain your your same, you'll be at an advantage. It's so interesting. And it's got to be kind of fascinating and fun to pick up this new sport and, and find out that there's so many intricacies to how it works and how to be excellent at it. Right. Right. So when we were first going down, Matt, (laughs) 
I'm like, okay, I'm such a detail oriented person. So like, I'm like, okay, how do I drive? How do I slow down? How do I turn? Which, which curve do I do this on to tell so I can be the most prepared as possible. But the way they do it, they don't want to tell you a lot of details because they don't want to make you overthink. They don't want you to be tense or even thinking too much while you're going down. So when we went, that was just like, all right, good luck. And I'm like, wait, what do you mean good luck? on but they start us from we don't start from the top of the track when we're training we actually start from below and they work us up um as the comfortable so when we went down he was like hey okay just try to be as relaxed as you can and then they just pushed us off <laughs> so that was really fun but um I, when i go back i'm gonna go from the top for my first time so i'm really excited about that in january because now, now that i've had so I, when we go from the top it'll be about 65 miles per hour that will be like a roller coaster that'll be fun <laughs> yeah definitely i love speed so i'm like oh my goodness i can't wait and a lot of the other athletes uh, who are veterans we all go to the cafeteria together so i'll see them in the cafeteria and this one girl she had her whole chin was scraped off and she just came up to me, what happened to your face and she was like oh nothing i just had a practice run earlier and i scraped my chin <laughs> i was like it looks like you need stitches and i'm not saying this is scary what it's just how like excruciating the sport can be sometimes I was like, wow, but we're, we just love sports and we're so passionate about it. We just laughed and we're like, oh, okay, see you tomorrow. And it's just that type of environment where we're so supportive of one another. <laughs> it's amazing. When I was walking into the cafeteria, I had blood coming out of my sock. And one of the trainers was like, oh my gosh, you're bleeding. <laughs> and I didn't even realize it. But I, like I was saying in the interview before, I think it takes that type of mentality where you're just going to go for it. Because if you're thinking too much, you'll probably mess it up. The bloody sock. Now we have a new story for the bloody sock. <laughs> All right. Uh, you guys are like, what? <laughs> oh, we've, we've heard stories. You cannot shock us with a bloody sock. I know one of my teammates was like, oh, yeah, I've gotten a concussion. And I was like, a concussion? Wow. Okay. <laughs> that I completely believe. I Yeah, it can, I can see. But these are safer than bobsled. Yeah, as people think skeleton is... There's more injuries in bobsled than there is skeleton. So that's a good thing. <laughs> that is a good thing. What's it what what's it like to put that shield over your face for the first time? Because I, I always see them you know, when when I see skeleton athletes get ready to go, it's just like they breathe heavy and then they put that shield down over their face and it looks like they're not gonna breathe or hardly breathe for the next forty seconds. Oh yeah. So when I first, and we have our helmets um, custom fit to our heads and I have an Afro. So when I got my helmet custom fit, I had my Afro, but then I also straightened my hair. So it goes like bone straight. So then I straightened my hair the next day and I went to put my helmet on and it didn't work. And I was like, oh my goodness, it's because my hair was big yesterday. So when I was going down the track, I know, isn't that so funny? <laughs> When I put my shield down, my helmet was shaking it. It was about to come off. And when you're breathing, it's like the fog clouds the um, shield in the front. So I couldn't see. My helmet was coming off. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to die. So I just closed my eyes. And I was like, if I just stay calm, I'll make it to the end. <laughs> but um, that had given us its a spray you can put onto your shield so that it doesn't fog. So I'm just learning all the 
all the tips of the game, you're supposed to spray your helmet before you go and wipe it clean with a microfiber towel and be good. So I was just going out there not knowing anything. I'm like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm making all these rookie mistakes. <laughs> and all the coaches were laughing. They were like, it's fine. It's your first time. We all go through it. But I definitely, I'm going to have to make sure that I have extra padding for my helmet when my hair is straight. <laughs> <laughs> that is something I never thought I would hear. I'm like, the, the, I know. Size of, the size of your hair on any given day can affect your performance. <laughs> yeah, because my hair was so big. It was so big that they were like, oh, she doesn't need any padding. Her hair is padding. <laughs> so they didn't put any padding in my helmet. They just gave me a regular one and was like, oh, you'll be fine. But I didn't even think about it the next day. It didn't even register that I didn't have my hair, so my helmet wouldn't fit anymore. <sighs> and it was too late to, to go back. It was like... Because like I was saying, we go to like three different sheds before we even get to the top. So once we were to the top, he was like, well, we can't go back. <laughs> That's the only thing we have for you. So I just had to rock with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Leah, thank you so much and good luck. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Leah. You can catch Leah on Insta at Athletus Fitness. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. She was so much fun. It is so much fun to talk to people when they're first starting out in the sport and everything is new and they can remember all of these details on everything that they learn, you know, because once you once it becomes like muscle memory and you've done it for a few years, you forget some of those details that you just learn to take for granted. So it was fun. And you don't often have an athlete at 24 starting a new sport. Right. So she can be aware and articulate and share those things that if you were, you know, say 10 or 12, you wouldn't even register. Yeah. Yeah. So she was a lot of fun. And I'm, I'm happy she really likes skeleton because I, I mean, like getting chosen for skeleton, I would be scared to death. I mean, I guess if you've always wanted to get a chin implant, it's a good sport because it'll <laughs> give you an excuse to make that happen, possibly. <laughs> Uh, but best of luck, Leah, and we will be following you and uh, keep us posted on how you are doing. All right, moving on to our Team Olympic Fever update. Tofu. This is a segment where we catch up on our previous guests who are members of Team Olympic Fever. The Tofu segment is sponsored by PinCollector.com. PinCollector.com is the world's largest free online community for Olympic pin collectors. You can easily catalog value and show off your collection. And their catalog contains a good 26,000 pins and it's updated in real time. So you always have the most current information on what's out there and what it's valued at. So it's also a platform where you can buy, sell, and trade, and the rates for doing so are lower than other online platforms. I'm on there, and I have a new pin to add. I'm very excited to add a nice, new-to-me, old-to-the-world pin that I got for Christmas. Uh, so visit pincollector.com and sign up today, and you can see what my pins are. Thanks to our partnership with Pin Collector, we have our very own Olympic Fever pin. Become a Patreon patron or make a one-time $20 PayPal donation and you can get yours. Visit olimfever.com slash support hyphen the hyphen show to learn more details. And it's been fun because in our Facebook group, people have been posting that they've gotten their pins and it's really nice. 
Yes, and they've been putting them on clothes and putting them on stuffed animals, and so we get to see what people do with their pins, which is very which exciting. is fun. It's very exciting, and I believe I'm sending out a new one soon, so get yours before I run out of these fancy cards that I have that go with them. The bonus gift for, yeah, the, bonus gift. for the new year. All right. Well, uh, Bob Sledder, Nick Cunningham has taken another step out of retirement and will be racing this weekend in both the two-man and four-man events at Lake Placid. Very exciting. Can't stay away. I know. You know, I don't know if I could stay away from bobsled. I think that one would be fun. I'd be afraid of skeleton, but I think bobsled would be so much fun. But Leah told us that more people get hurt in bobsled. And I'm not surprised either because it's a big sled. And if you fall over, you can really get hurt. But It's a a big sled and I'm a little person. (laughs) I am not getting in that sled. (laughs) Even with Nick. (laughs) Jake Dalton is hosting the Jake Dalton Invitational Gymnastics Competition at the Grand Sierra Hotel and Casino in Reno, Nevada this weekend. That's really exciting. I'm really glad that he's got a meet going. And that's really, it's nice that he's organizing a competition and and giving back to the sports and fostering the development of other athletes. Absolutely. Now, I wonder if anybody will perform the Dalton at the Dalton. That would be amazing. (laughs) There might be a break in the space-time continuum, but we'll work on that. (laughs) Megan Duhamel and her partner Eric Radford will be returning to Stars on Ice this spring. Megan has returned to skating this month after the birth of her daughter Zoe, and she posted up on Instagram that it's going to be difficult, but I'll try my best. The first day out, she was doing a death spiral and doing a jump. (laughs) And she's like, oh, I did a really bad job. I'm like, you look fantastic, Megan. You just keep going. Right, right. You had a baby. Your body's doing different things. And you're trying to hurdle it into the air. And she did a pretty darn good job of it, too. So, And our next Olympic hopeful season two winner, Lindsay Mayo, who we t- whom we talked with a few weeks ago, she made it home for New Year's. She posted a fantastic video surprising her mom. <gasps> Apparently, she and her brothers and sisters arranged for this to happen to get her home she wasn't supposed to be home until maybe february i think she told us and so they surprised her mom oh that is fantastic that was pretty fantastic yeah it was great to see so i'm glad that because i know Lindsay told us christmas is a very big deal at her house so a few days after christmas but you know tree's still up everybody's still around so i'm sure her mom was thrilled oh that is awesome all right, let's move on to our Mara novella. There's a new chapter in the saga in that Sapporo is officially bidding for the 2030 Winter Olympics. Now, you might remember that they were thinking about bidding for 2026, but they had some infrastructure things and there was an earthquake up in Hokkaido. And so they dropped out of that, but we're like, we're still thinking about 2030. And they are officially putting in a bid. And one of the things that was reported in, uh, inside the games is where uh, I got the story. But they said that according to NHK, which is a Japanese uh, broadcaster, uh, Sapporo Mayor uh, Katsuhiro Akimoto hopes successfully hosting events during next year's Summer Olympic Games in Tokyo, such as marathon and race walk events, will prove the city's capability to manage major sporting events. To which in the chess game, it's just like, your move, IOC. <laughs> I love it. I know it, it. Chess is the perfect analogy because I was I was really surprised that Sapporo made this move. 
after oh. the whole drama and some of the things that were said on on all sides that they would then throw their hat in the ring for 2030 but yeah, yeah i guess i mean to me it was like well we thought about it but like now we have a bargaining chip you owe us one ioc for pulling this stunt and doing this to us which is interesting because now i want to know what Salt Lake thinks because they were going to bid for a future Winter Games too and did not bid for 2026 because they didn't want to uh, steal the thunder from LA 2028. So now that Sapporo has a little bargaining chip in their wallet, what happens with the Salt Lake City 2030 bid? Because that's a pretty viable bid as well, I would think. So it's interesting that after the couple of years of nobody wanting to bid... <laughs> We right? seem to be swinging back right. to cities really wanting to bid. It's interesting. And I wonder if some of those new norm principles m are making that more attractive or if cities don't care. Because I still see news on how failed bids for 2026 are like costing millions of dollars. So remember how Sion in in uh, Switzerland, they were going to bid and they dropped out. Well, that cost them a few million dollars. And Calgary's bid, poor Calgary, their bid cost a few million dollars. But, you know, you do wonder, it's it's interesting to see cities still want to host the games. So we will see what happens. Well, we haven't heard much about the 2030 bid process. We just know that people are now interested. So we'll keep an eye on that. We have a, a little update in the hotel novella as well. If you subscribe to our newsletter, which comes out on Tuesdays, you will have gotten this update because, uh, as usual, we taped the show, then instantly some news came out, but it comes out in time to put it in our newsletter. And you can get that at our website, olimfever.com. Well, the EU's Court of Justice ruled that Airbnb is an online platform and not a property agent. So it is exempt from... French regulations and taxes involving property and those types of businesses. Right, because I know France was trying to say they're really a hotel and right. should be taxed the same as hotels and property managers. Mm -hmm. and, okay. and I believe there was a little, I, I, also this was an article from Inside the Games, but I believe there was a little bit of, hey, if this was a problem, you should have done something about it a long time ago when they first came out. Oh, the idea that the the court of our uh, the court of justice was saying that they that they waited too long to address the issue of Airbnb. Yeah, the the court of justice said that France should have lodged its concerns before the EU e-commerce law was enacted. So basically, you didn't say this was a problem back then. Right. So why are you and, complaining? And now about that it's it now? become a problem for you, mm -hmm. too little, too late. We'll keep following that one as well. Oh, hey. What did you get for Christmas? I know you got something big and Olympic because I've seen the pictures on the socials and in our Facebook group. So my daughter surprised me with a warm-up jacket from Team USA from 1988. Oh, is it is this amazing, bizarre, like parachute pant material. So it's oh. sort of papery and plasticky and clothy all at the same time. And no, and per like, is it a windbreaker type? Yes, yes. Okay. I would, I would say it is a windbreaker, and it is so eighties and so fabulous, and I cannot wait to wear it. It's a little <laughs> too cold. I'd have to put something on over it right now, but I can guarantee that for watch parties, 
for Tokyo, I will be wearing this jacket. Excellent. Excellent. Oh, man. That is a that is an amazing gift. That was pretty fantastic. And yourself, did you get any? Uh, um, I, I did get a little pin. I also got a book called uh, "The Olympic Games in Ancient Greece," which my sister-in-law hauled back from Athens. She went to Greece this summer and brought it back. And I, th- it's impressive that she did bring this back because it is a heavy book. It is a big, uh, almost coffee table-like book, and it. it she brought it back so i am looking forward to digging into that and then of Very course nice. there was a requisite trip to we we always do a family trip to barnes and noble the day after christmas because everyone gets gift cards so there were a few books bought there there are a few books bought at a couple of other stores that we stopped at on the way back and on the way down we just we when we unloaded the car from our trip because we went uh went to went to florida for a family when we unloaded the car, we just kept finding bags of books. It was, it was uh, uh, one would say, impressive. I, I'm going to say it was impressive, but I will be doing a lot of reading. And you that know what, be- I'm, what I'm working on is The Suspect, our new book club book. I just got it. It is so good. And I just saw the Richard Jewell movie today. Well, hold so- on to that. Okay. Hang on. But the book is really good and really interesting. So I cannot wait to talk to Claire about it. I haven't started yet. I'm still recovering from my eggnog stupor. <laughs> but I will get going on that next week. All right. And if you don't have the book, you still have time. Visit olimfever.com and click on the link for book club. And you'll find out more information about the book. And speaking of next week. Yes. Next week, we are going to debut our movie club. So excited about this. We have a new contributor to the show, film buff Fran, will be here to discuss Chariots of Fire. So let us know what you think of the movie. Email us at olimfever at gmail.com. Call our voicemail hotline at 53070fever. We're olimfever on Twitter and Insta and Olympic Fever podcast group on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. So I just had to rock with it.